you know, I have learned that I need to surround myself with people who are more cautious than I am and people whom I feel comfortable enough with and they feel comfortable enough with me that when they come to me and say, Deb, this is a great idea, but, you know, maybe it's not a next Tuesday idea, that I can listen to that and I can hear them. And I think I'm pretty good at that, although I'm, I make mistakes, right? You know, I, I do tend to, to be a little bit more impetuous than is ideal. But at Barnard, you know, again, it, it took a while. But by the time I left, I felt like I had a team that I could completely trust. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, we talked to Jazzy T. Williams, CEO and founder of the Jazzcast Pros Podcast Network. And we talked about how to inspire and manage creative people. Now, for the next couple of episodes, I'm going to be a little bit in a reflective mood. Since crossing episode 100, I've been thinking about some of the lessons I learned while producing the podcast and how to share them in a new, interesting way. So I'm going to experiment with a couple of episodes where we hear from different leaders around a specific theme. Through this 100 episode, we heard from many different leaders who were coming from different type of organizations. Among them, you heard from two former presidents of great academic institutions. Deborah Sparts, former president of Barnard College, and Roger Brown, former president of Berkeley College of Music. Today, our theme is leadership lessons from the world of higher education. We're going to start with Deborah Spart. Before joining Barner, Deb was a professor at Harvard Business School, where, by the way, she's back now as both a professor and a senior associate dean. So we start our episode with a discussion about the transition from an academic to a leadership role and how teaching the case method in the classroom informed her approach to leadership. One thing that I want to talk about with you, which is very interesting, people normally do not think about professors or academics as having leadership or management roles, but it is, you know, universities need to be run and they tend to be slightly different animals than other corporations and they require different leadership skills. So you mentioned that you started taking on also a management role at the business school before taking the full leap. So what were some of the lessons that you started learning about leadership and about yourself as you started taking on that different role within the school? Yeah, no, and you're exactly right. I mean, many academics are explicitly delighted not to have to play any administrative responsibilities. I started liking them early on, and I was very lucky. Right after I was tenured, and I was sort of still quite young in my career, the dean at HBS, and, and Dino, I think it was the dean when you were here, was a wonderful guy named Kim Clark. And Kim very consciously took young faculty and put them into leadership roles. And he had what's now called the Dean's Management Group and had a bunch of uh, senior associate deans. And he put me into one of those roles very early on. And then he moved me around and I, I did several other roles. And over the years, a number of us were in Kim Clark's uh, uh, Dean's Management Group. We've all gone on to leadership positions. And, and, and I, I pause on that for a moment because I feel so grateful that you know someone in a position of leadership sort of actively chose to give me and others leadership opportunities because I never would have, you know, you don't stumble onto these things on your own. And he really invested in us. And I think because, you know, I am a learner and an observer by nature, I watched Kim. And when I moved into the presidency of Barnard, 
I was kind of shocked at how frequently I was reflecting back on things I had seen Kim do. And, and so it's enabled me to be kind of a conscious leader. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very sort of aware of what I'm doing. Not, not that I always get it right by any means, but I think I, I also sort of took the Harvard Business School case method with me. And I remember in my early days of Barnard having these sort of almost out-of-body experiences saying, huh, Deborah Spar is dealing with a horrible situation. What should she do? And I was able to kind of pull out of the situation and approach it. And then the, the, the last thing I'll say is, um, again, I was lucky. And I think, you know, to be honest, and part of it, because I was sort of, you know, a woman in interesting positions when people were, were eager to, put, you know, find women to put into other interesting positions. You know, I've sat on a lot of boards, both nonprofit and for-profit, and it's given me an ability to watch lots of leaders and to watch the differences and to kind of always be able to sort of compare, huh? This thing is playing out a certain way in Goldman Sachs, but it's playing out very differently in my daughter's, you know, elementary school. And being able to sort of compare and contrast has given me in some ways sort of a menu of options to think about. Again, not that I've always picked from that menu correctly, but I've seen a lot of different leadership styles. Yeah, I want to go back for a second. You mentioned earlier that you were thinking about the case study method in your role as a professor. And something that has always fascinated me as I progressive a lot later in my career is in a learning environment like Harvard Business School, where everything is driven by the case method, and you as a professor are put in charge of a group of 80 to 90 people who are at that stage of a career, fairly young, in order for them to make it to that classroom, the reality is that all of them have experienced a very high degree of success. They really have no concept of failure. And at that stage, especially in the first year, just the simple fact that they made it to the classrooms has definitely, let's say, helped the opinion that they have of themselves. So the other side of that is that, you know, I think you were one of the best professors that I had. In, at the school, you would not be here in this interview if you weren't. But I've also seen what happens in that environment to professors. They may not have the command of the room or the understanding of the dynamics. So what are some of the lessons that being in that pit for you know several years, four hours a day, five days a week has taught you? So you know, this is such a great question. And I have to say that all the time I was at Barnard, I kept saying, I've got to write an article on what I learned at the Harvard Business School, because it's not like the obvious things. Because what I learned at Harvard Business School was the case method, and it shaped everything about me. I still haven't written that article, but I will one day. And you're really intuitive to have sort of seen that from the, pers the professor's perspective. So the risk of being slightly too personal. When I started at the Harvard Business School, which I think was like three years before I taught your class, I was 27 years old. So I was the same age as my students. I did not have an MBA. I had a PhD in political science, which to an MBA student is totally irrelevant and useless. I was teaching economics, even though I didn't really know economics. And within the first two weeks of being in the classroom, I was pregnant. So I was not what my students were expecting. And it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And to your point, you've got to command the room. You've got to command the material. And, and I didn't have those skills. And I had to get them. And I had to get them fast. And it took me a couple of years to get 
comfortable. And I had been a really good teacher when I was teaching at Harvard College. So I thought I'd have this figured out, but it wasn't even close. And figuring out how to, you know, how to handle 93 egos in a room when, as you forgot to mention, they're also being graded on participation. It's insane. I mean, it's just insane. (laughs) And, but you figure it out. And I, well, not everybody figures out. I, you know, I figured it out in part because I had really good mentors and people invested in me. And, and I, you know, I, I had to make it work. I had two kids by this point. Like I, I had to make this work and I figured it out. And the last thing I'll say on this is once I did develop those skills, they shaped everything else I did. So when I moved to Barnard, every time we were dealing with a really tough set of issues, one of the ones that I remember most distinctly was we, we had to figure out what to do with transgender students at a women's college, which is a very complicated issue. And it's delicate and it's sensitive and it's intimate. And, and I dealt with it through case method. And we put 100 people in a room at a time and I asked three questions. And, and I have to say, I don't mean to sound self-aggrandizing, sort of after these events, colleagues would come up to me and be like, oh my God, how did you do that? And why did you think of doing it? I'm like, this is all I know how to do. I know how to teach case method. And I think it's actually a brilliant way of bringing groups of people to a decision because that's essentially what the case method is. Yeah. And I think, you know, just one addendum, I think one complicating factor in your specific subject, you were teaching microeconomics and macroeconomics, yes, sir, macroeconomics and political issues. And, you know, you had a class where people sat along the full political spectrum. I think that was a, an era where, it was a lot easier to be on opposite side because some of my best friends from uh, the business school and some of my favorite memories from this time was discussions with people that had a 180 degree opposite view of mine. But I think that there was a dynamic in your teaching and figuring out when do I bring out the opposing views? When do I bring out a series of things on the, a series of opinion that I know are going to be in line. And so I'm wondering, like, you know, as you're in a boardroom, what are some of the sort of tactics, ideas that are coming from that experience that may show up? Yeah, I think, and there are a lot of tactics. I think one of them is knowing who your students are. And it's not that I could, you know, always predict what everyone was going to say, but I had a pretty good idea. You know, I knew who was where on the political spectrum. I knew who was good with the numbers. I knew who was bad with the numbers. And, you know, years later, when I when I was at Lincoln Center, one of the things that I found so intriguing was that kind of leading a case method class is like leading a symphony orchestra. You know, there's something weirdly sort of musical about it. You can, and I always have to do the hand motion, which I'm sorry, I know people can't see on a podcast, but you have this array of people in front of you and, and you, you have to pluck a person out at the right time. And you need to stop people from talking at some points in time. And you need to get the quiet voices out. And it really is, when you do it right, it is kind of a symphony. And you have to, you have to know where the voices are going to come from. And you have to bring them in, you know, at the right time and at the right cadence. And different people do that differently. I found just because it worked with my personality, I used humor. You know, when I needed to shut people up, I I sort of tried to shut them up with something that was funny or at least, you know, was less felt less aggressive. But it took a while to figure that that part out. But you have to know the room. 
In the next segment, Deb talks about what it takes to come into a new organization as a new leader and how she tackled that when she joined Barnard as a president. You know, when you move, I think there's a big difference in terms of sort of growing up in a place and becoming a leader versus coming in as a leader when you're also coming in as an outsider. So, you know, I, as I said, I came to Harvard Business School when I was 27. You know, by the time I left here, I kind of knew everyone. As I'm fond of saying, I knew where all the bodies were buried. I knew the fights that had been fought 30 years ago. I know who wouldn't talk to whom. And it gave me a power because I knew, like I knew how to solve kind of every problem here because I knew who controlled which, you know, which levers. And most of the time they weren't the people at the top. It was which mid-level administrators actually had the power. When I moved to Barnard, I didn't know a soul. And, and I think it took me a while to realize how vulnerable that made me. Like you think you're, you know, you're the boss, but you're not because you don't know where the bodies are buried, but you know, they're there. You don't know who fought with whom, but you know, those fights were there. And so I think it's, it's, a, you know, when you're in that kind of a, you know, apparent leadership, but actually vulnerable position, you have to kind of listen to everybody. And you also have to, like in those early years, I would be more cautious or wary of my team telling me no, because I didn't really understand their motivations and they didn't understand mine. So I think what became critical to me was to slowly develop a leadership team that I could trust and who trusted me. And, and that takes a while. And some of that leadership team wound up being people I had inherited who became part of my team. And some of them were people I, I brought in. But I don't think you can have that I don't think those levels of trust come automatically. They have to be built over time and they have to be built in both directions. There's no reason why they should trust me on day one. They don't know me. What's some of the things that a manager in that position, you know, at whatever level, new position of authority, still not established, what are some practices that they could do or follow to start building that trust? I think the most important thing for me, and I've seen lots of other people do it, is is to listen. And it sounds trivial, but it's not. So I did in my first year at Barnard, I went to see every group, every department, you know, for an hour, I brought bagels or whatever it was. And I went to their space, you know, and I found that very important, harder to do during COVID times to kind of see what people's, you know, see what the biology labs felt like, see what the library stacks felt like to try and live in their environment, even for an hour. And to put the names with the faces and just to listen, you know, and, and I tried, to, it took me like a year to do that, but I think it was incredibly useful. Then, and this will sound strange, but as I mentioned, I'm a student of political science and I, I always was deeply struck by what, what Mao Zedong did in his early years of power, not usually known as, you know, a great corporate leader. But one of the things that Mao Zedong did as he was gaining power was he actually gained power first in the countryside. He didn't try and gain power first in Beijing or Shanghai. He gained power in the countryside by helping the farmers, by giving the things they needed to not be starving all the time. And, and not to trivialize that, but I've sort of taken that lesson with me. I think people are only going to follow you if you deliver on some things early on. So I was always looking for opportunities, like sincere opportunities, to kind of really, what do people really need? What do they want? And can I fix that? And so 
you know, without going into the gore details, you know, when I did, you know, dozens and dozens of these listening sessions at Barnard, I realized there were a couple of things that people really wanted. And some of them were really hard to deliver, but a couple of them were easy. And I used whatever political power and, you know, financial resources I had to deliver that, to get, you know, and then you get buy-in and then people know that you're not listening just as a performative process. You're actually listening and you're trying to help. And I've always found that, you know, you can't always do that, but trying to see where you can get the early wins is really important. Now we move on to Roger Brown. Roger had a very interesting career before becoming president of Berkeley. He started out working in the field for non-for-profits in Asia and Africa, then had a brief stint as a management consultant and was the founder and CEO of Bright Horizons, a chain of uh, kindergarten centers that was uh, targeted at corporations for their employees. So we start our conversation with a key lesson that he learned while he was CEO of Bright Horizons. And then we cover a topic that I think is really important in any environment, which is how to connect the importance of financial results to motivate people who are purpose-driven. And then finally, he gives a clear strategy of what he was trying to accomplish as president at Berkeley and what are the key operating decisions that he made that ended up getting the results that he wanted, even though those results include me probably never being able to be admitted at Berkeley. Enjoy. I can't say there was a eureka moment, but I think it was a gradual realization that I'll tell you a story that's related to this. The Bright Horizon strategy was to get employers to help subsidize the cost of childcare, either through by donating a facility or a sliding fee scale for tuitions or whatever, which then allowed us to pay teachers more than most of the other competing childcare centers. I was super proud of that, and I always felt like one of the big flaws in childcare was the undercompensation of teachers. Our turnover rates were lower, our teachers, we thought, were better. But the truth of the matter is they still weren't paid anywhere near what they should have been paid. They were almost all paid less than public school teachers. And I was very defensive about that for many years. Now, when people would complain that their pay wasn't good enough, I would always talk about how good it was relative to other people, as opposed to comparing it to the ideal. Like if we lived in a world where we respected early childhood education. We respected teachers. They'd be paid like public school teachers. And in many places, public school teachers aren't paid enough. So there was a guy I worked with who kind of confronted me. He was in charge of education for us. He's a very smart guy. And he confronted me and he said, Roger, I think you're missing the point. Like when you explain to someone why you know, making $33,000 a year is better than making $25,000 a year. It's insulting to, you know, you're, you're not hearing them. You're not understanding what it's like to try to raise a family on $33,000 a year in the United States of America. And that was a real epiphany for me that sometimes, you know, whenever you feel yourself getting defensive, that's when you've got to let your guard down and say, I wish we could pay more. It's not enough. And I changed my whole thinking and all my rhetoric about this, which was to acknowledge that fact, to say we're proud of the fact we're paying 20, 30 percent better 
but that's still not good enough. We need to do more. We need to advocate with our with our clients to help us do more. And it's a small thing, but I think it, it humanized me to the organization. It let me let my guard down. So I think the same can be true when you feel yourself defensive about, you know, one of your, either your peers or a direct report or a boss is upset that you don't know something and you get defensive, usually that's going to get in the way of you getting better. Yeah. So the second thing that you said really early in our conversation that I think fits into this point of the conversation is this. We talked about the fact that you worked in education in in a very creative environment like Berkeley. And you mentioned that you brought the strategy and the quantification. And I think one of the biggest challenges that people face in business in general is uh, the conversation between the person on the front line who is delivering a service or a product and has really passion for the service and the product. And obviously, you know, for a creative person, it's even more personal. And then the business person who has to say, you know, whether it is in a service situation where like, well, the client is always right. Well, not the client is always right. But we are also part of the equation. Our financial health is also part of the equation. So that communication, I think, is one of the biggest area of tension within businesses. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for people who find themselves on either side of the equation, whether the, you know, the creative person who is focused on delivering the best product possible and he's faced with somebody who's telling them you can't spend that or you you need to charge more to your client. And then the sort of the business leader who is the person telling to that creative person. I think that is one of the great tensions that exist in every organization, not just businesses, nonprofits, public sector, is that tension between the ideal world you want to live in and the resources you have in this world. And I read something, I think it might have been Peter Drucker, that I used a lot at Bright Horizons. The thing I used to say is, look, sustainability, generating a profit, that's like oxygen to us. You know, we have to have oxygen to get to ourselves or they die. On the other hand, we don't exist to breathe and share oxygen with ourselves. We have a larger, more important purpose than just the breathing or just the profit making. But that is a necessary condition to be who we want to be. If we want to pay teachers better, we need to staff efficiently so that we're not wasting money being overstaffed at the wrong time. If we really believe that quality matters, we have to convince parents to pay for it or corporations to pay for it for their parents. So I think once you take profitability out as the the raison d'etre and you explain it as a part of sustainability and the ability to to make the future investments in the things you care about, it can de-escalate that tension somewhat. And I, I hear so many business people who are tone deaf it was so true in the childcare world. Some of the leading childcare companies were so proud of how low their labor costs were and how they had all the systems of a, of a fast food enterprise. And you think, ooh, who wants to be a teacher in a system that thinks of itself like a fast food enterprise? And who wants to be a parent and enroll your child in a place like that? So I think having the sensitivity, as you, as you said, to the people who are on the front line, either teaching the musicians or teaching the young children or trying to deliver the food aid and the vaccinations to people in rural Sudan, you know, like being in touch with the actual thing that's done and not just being in this 
rarefied, abstracted world of the numbers is key. Yep. So I want to change subject a little bit. As I mentioned to our listeners, you have been the president of Berkeley for 17 years. And I have actually had a front row seat from the other side of Berkeley because my brother was a student from 91 to 95. Then my wife became a student from 95 to 99. And then she was a professor from 2000 to recently. And, you know, when you started, this is a personal judgment. I think it was an incredible turnaround for the school. And I have like, you know, as I was seeing the way that the school was changing from when my, when my brother was there to the past few years, I kind of had a number of ideas of what your three or four key strategic actions were. But I'm wondering if you would be willing to articulate when you took Berkeley, you know, the three or four like big themes of what you were trying to do. Yeah, that's a good question. And I had three themes in my mind the whole time. First, let me say, my analogy of Berkeley is it was like a 12-cylinder Jaguar that had enormous potential power, but the, the spark plugs were not all firing properly. And so the goal was to take what was great about the place, but to get the timing of the spark plugs right, to get the, the fuel pump to be sending the fuel at the right moment and just get all the, the fine tuning done. So I have the, this mantra in my head, which I shared with people when they or they would ask me three things we're trying to do. We want to attract the most talented young musicians in the world. And by that, we don't mean virtuosic. We mean creative, talented people who can make the kind of music of the future that will be studied at other conservatories someday, a hundred years from now. So a, a sort of a creative vision of a student with great aptitude. Maybe they're virtuosic, but you know, so many of the people we love musically are not virtuosos, but they have intense creativity. The second was, okay, once we find them, how do we get them here? So we need more scholarships. We need our curriculum to be in sync with what those students want to study. We need to create a culture where faculty are encouraging students, not discouraging students. There's a terrible thing that can happen at music schools where faculty are so disaffected with the industry maybe disaffected with their own experiences, some of their own disappointments. They project that onto their students, which is a horrible thing. And then the third mantra was, okay, then we got to try to help them go out into the world and make their way, which is a complicated one in a music school because there are two schools of thought in a music school. One is have no plan B, like go for broke, move to LA, Nashville, New York, and just just go after it, hammer and tongs. The other is you need a plan B. So you need to know how to teach some students or do some education or have a day job. And honestly, I've seen both models work and I'm not, it's not my place to tell a young person what to do, but you need to create an environment in which students are thinking on their own in a proactive way about their future without being totally terrified the whole time. So I felt to me like if we could do those three things better, would be an amazing place. Uh, so then the question was, every new idea, every new opportunity, how does it match up to those three objectives? And we put a lot of emphasis in the beginning on the first one. Like we changed the whole way we do admissions, the way we do audition. We auditioned everybody. We used to not audition everybody who came. We created tougher standards. So if you weren't strong, 
we didn't admit you. It dashed my dream of going back to Berkeley when I'm really old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might make it. I mean, it's not impossible to get in. I mean, there are these rumors of that. I, I'm an average musician. I probably would have gotten in as a young person. I wouldn't have been at the top of the heap. Maybe I'd have been a lot better by the time I finished. But so we changed the, the whole admissions and enrollment process. We increased financial student financial aid by 900 percent. I mean, dramatically dramatic improvements because we had a worst of both worlds situation where we got some affluent students who weren't that talented and we got some super talented people, but we didn't offer them enough support. So that creates a real bunch of cognitive dissonance when you get those people together. So by having a student body where there's better fit and there was a lot more financial support for people, I think that helped a lot. Then we did a bunch of other things, which uh, were probably not that interesting. But, uh, you know, I guess the point of that is having a, a mental template about what you're trying to do and then judge and measure everything against that. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends about it and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, please leave a stellar rating and a review. Five stars all the way. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And then please follow the podcast on any social platform that you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, you can look for authentic leadership for everyday people. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savrian on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's from her album Haunted Heart, and it's called Queen of the Dancehall. If you get beyond the lights of Phoenix Where the desert winds touched with sage There's a broken down bar Where the cowboys gather And good old country music plays They're coming from the cattle ranches In clean fresh shirts and cheese Alone, drinking down beer 
this dust on Folks say she left a child behind On the run from a man With a hard whiskey temper And a sharp and jealous mind She'll dance with whoever is asking She's good for a drink and a smile But don't lay a hand on her Stetson Or the scar Oh, she's... 